0: Hi and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. Today, we're happy to welcome Anne, partner at Antler Nordics, former entrepreneur and startup expert. At Antler, Anne has made more than 40 investments in early stage startups and was named Company Builder of the Year in 2021, as well as top 10 leadership talents 2021 in Norway by E24. Anne's entrepreneurial background comes from Turkey, where she founded one of the country's first health food, FMCG, with customers such as Starbucks and Careful. If you enjoy our content, Do support us by hitting the follow button, giving us a review and following the European VC on LinkedIn.
1: So, Anne, welcome to the European VC. We are so happy to have you with us.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: And I would love to dive into your route into venture, especially entrepreneurship, because I recall and I think it's I don't know what it's nine months ago since we first spoke but I recall being actually in an airport on the way to a conference in Greece I think and I was blown away by your story about Turkey and everything so tell us that story again I want to hear it and I want to laugh all the way through
2: I realized sort of once you live it, you don't see how strange or uncommon uh, your path is, right? And then you get some perspective and when enough people are told you what, you did what? Then you realize that, okay, most people probably wouldn't do this. But yeah, my way into venture, I mean, I guess I started as a lot of people coming into ventures, not really thinking that this is where I would end up. I studied finance, did a deep dive in innovation and entrepreneurship. So I guess I can always pretend that I planned for this, but it is quite random. I, you know, started first off in software, I was working for one of uh, Europe's largest software companies i got a few years there right in that shift when everyone's going into cloud and you know switching over to saw so it was an interesting time to be in software but after a few years i decided to quit my job and move abroad and i'm norwegian but ended up in turkey and that kind of forced me into entrepreneurship and i'm saying forced I, i think i would have at some point started something on my own i've always been very entrepreneurial but that was sort of the kick in the butt that i needed to actually go through with launching something. And, you know, my, my way to Turkey, that was through love. My uh, then boyfriend, now husband is Turkish. And it was sort of where we realized that we would test out living together and being together a bit more officially. So I was more movable adventurous at the time and, and moved to Turkey, but had absolutely no knowledge of the country, the language, the culture, anything like that before actually packing up in a few suitcases and and moving over. And quite quickly when I got there, I realized that there's absolutely no way I'm going to get a job in this market because you need to speak the language. So I started working on sort of, okay, how can I make money then? I need to create my own job in that case. And that's sort of how I started planning to become an entrepreneur and and start a company. And I basically took the approach of sort of thinking, what am I passionate about? What would I be able to do uh, with my background and the very limited network that I had there? And where do I see an opportunity in the market that I'm now in? And I've always been, I mean, as most people love food, but I've always been very much into sort of cleaner food products and realized pretty quickly that that whole trend, that whole health food trend that we see in the US and Europe in general, that hadn't really hit Turkey yet, but it's an industry that at the time it was growing, like, I think it was six, 7% year over year. Uh, So massive growth and development. And at the same time, matching that with the fact that a lot of the ingredients that you needed to make healthier food products, they were so readily available in the Turkish market. They have such a lush food culture and so much raw materials that you need there you know they grow fruits and vegetables and all the dried fruits in the world that you can think of they have there all the spices you can think of in the world nuts seeds absolutely everything that i needed to start developing my own products i could very readily available find there so that's how sort of the seed of starting my company came about and uh, what i did was develop these raw bars similar to i guess in europe we have rhubarb for instance Uh, in the us you have the kind bar that are quite big or massive. And I decided to do something similar for the Turkish market.
1: And I love how this could just be chucked up as, okay, you, uh, you did something simple and then you founded a business. But I think that the importance of this is what it says about character, <laughs> because every single Nordic person, I've gone to the southern countries and said, it's amazing the fruits that's here. It's amazing the vegetables that's here. But the majority of us end up going home again and don't do shit about it, but you chose to build a business around it. And I'd love to dive a bit more into that journey because when we spoke, you said there was something magical about the experience of having to get stakeholders to jump at the same time when everyone is waiting for each other. And any GP listening to this is going to say, well, that's exactly like raising a VC fund. Mm. <laughs> so tell us a bit about that.
2: Yeah, it's really true, right? And I think, you know, looking back, and that's probably why my my story stands out, right? It's not like I built, you know, a massive technology company or anything like that. So it's a little different from what VCs are looking for. But I think the interesting element of it is how Sort of hard it was to do what i did you know i was a foreigner in the market i was still very young at the time i did not have access to capital i did not have a network whatsoever i'd never done it before right so i had to learn absolutely everything on the job and one of the things that i learned is that trust is not something that is just given to you you have to earn it and people are not just gonna support you without trusting that you will see it through on your end so when I started sort of developing the product and got to a place where I had something that I could sell, I was very clear from the get go, I'm not going to make something and sell it to my friends or in a random you know, corner store. If I'm going to do this, it's go big or go home. So I planned this around selling the product at Starbucks. And that was a very specific dream and target for me to the point where I even designed my products to fit the Starbucks shelf. I went into the Starbucks, I measured their shelves. I saw that everything on their stands, which is similar in absolutely every store that they have, it stands up sort of vertically next to each other, right? Most bars have this horizontal packaging. So I decided to do the opposite. I decided to flip it so that it would look as appealing as possible on the Starbucks shelf. So I sort of started out with a very, very clear vision that this is what I'm gonna do, but you don't just walk into Starbucks And get a deal with them and especially not in this market i mean it's uh if you compare it to norway right i think they have maybe 10 10 cafes in norway they had 450 at the time in turkey uh, grew to 500 during the years that i was working with them so you have to show them that you're able to deliver at the same time going to a factory was equally hard because they don't want to take a chance on me without knowing that i'm actually going to deliver the volumes that i'm planning on and you know, they need to know that I'm also a big fish if, they, if they're if they going to prioritize working with me. I had to find financing for the production and a place to sell my products all sort of simultaneously. So what I did was actually first reach out to Unilever, which was kind of the the way this all started, I'd heard that they were looking for some healthier products, got in contact with them and started pitching a way of co-bundling my products together with some of their products. And they had, you know, as a coincidence at the same time, they were sort of working on a strategy of selling more of their green tea products, which is hard in a market where Black tea is the only thing that people drink, but it's known to be sort of the healthier tea. So together we sort of designed this concept of let's bundle my healthy snacks with your healthy green teas and make make a product out of it. And that's how I was able to launch into the market. And as soon as I had sort of that one big brand name with me. I could use that to get a lot of credibility with everyone else that I was talking to. So I started with a small production facility just to deliver through this one co-bundling project together with Unilever. And then as soon as I had that, I knew that this is the leverage that I'm going to need to open all the other doors that I'm going to have to open. But then what happens, and I think this is very common, not just to VCs that are launching, but also to founders in general when you're launching, right? You don't... You don't have it all lined up at the same time. And sometimes you sort of have to sell it before you build it, a strategy. And that's exactly the approach that I had to take as well. So I went to Starbucks and I told them, look what I did with Unilever. Can you imagine what I can do for you guys? You know, you have absolutely nothing healthy on the on your shelves today. You don't have the natural offering uh, which people are craving. And I took a very sort of data-driven approach, show them all the graphs, show them all the growth trajectory, how these products are selling in other markets. So I was very sort of, intentional in the way that I was talking about it and using a lot of data in in these meetings to build conviction. And then at some point it became a conversation where I could see that this is going somewhere. So I asked to get, you know, let's put something in writing so that I can bring it back to my factory and we can start planning for this. And I can give you more accurate production numbers, et cetera. So I took that, you know, my conversations with Starbucks and I brought it to a new production facility and said, Hey, you guys, look, I have, I have Starbucks here. Can you imagine the volumes that we can deliver? But I need to show Starbucks that you can deliver what they need, right? So I got them to, I sort of had to play them all at at the same time, right? I also had to go to the bank because obviously, you know, anyone that's been in food production, they know that you obviously have to pay upfront for the production, but then it takes you 60 days before you get it all back. And I was bootstrapping my company. I only had whatever cash I was able to put into it myself. So I had to go to a bank as well and, and say, you know, look, I have Starbucks, I have production lined up you know, this is happening, but I need a bank loan. And can you imagine I'm a foreigner? I don't know anyone in the market. They have zero track record on me whatsoever. I was 26, 27 at the time, never launched anything, didn't speak the language there's no way I should get a bank loan for this. And it's a startup, you know, it shouldn't happen. But somehow just by sort of using all of these players at the same time and kind of rallying them up and getting them to put some sort of commitment in writing, I was able to also get the financing that I needed. So yeah, it all sort of played out in in, in a nice way. And looking back, obviously, I was sort of projecting things a little bit before it was happening, but that's really necessary sometimes. and You have to have that confidence that, I'm absolutely 100% going to deliver on this. And then you just have to do it right. Uh, that's, I guess that's when the hard, hard uh, work really starts as well.
1: And that is hard not to liken to a VC fund, right? <laughs> because everyone is in that situation that you have to get someone to jump first. There's almost... Better economics from, for a VC or for, for an LP to wait. At least there's no reason to be the first one to jump. So I'd love to hear now how you got around building Antler in the beginning and got it off the ground and, and those conversations with LPs, how you would maybe yeah. you know, liken that to that story. When
2: we launched Antler, this was a new model. We're investing you know, in a new asset class, really institutionalizing a new asset class. We're, we call ourselves a day zero investor. We invest when... The company is created as early as it can possibly be right and that's also quite new product to offer to lps and we didn't have a track record on this we hadn't tested the model we all really believed in it that's why we're here we didn't have a track record to to show to so it was really a lot about the same right i think raising capital is a lot about building trust and relationship building. So, you know, for me, for instance, I would use my story and tell this story and people would find it really interesting how I was able to go through with that. And sort of probably saw in me that this is a founder type personality if she could build that she could probably build this as well and then everyone else in the team they had to use their own sort of story and their own way of building conviction and building trust with potential LPs but here as well it's all about sort of building that trust that hey we have these other guys lined up this is going to work out this is the plan this is how we're going to do it and you know like have that first yes and really leverage that we were very intentional for instance to ask our first investors is it okay if we use your name when we talk to others. That turned out to be really, really important. Luckily, they all did say yes. And that's not a given. Sometimes in LPs, they want to be, you know, they don't want you to call out that they're the first ones to go in either. But we were very lucky that we got to name our first investors. And that became really important when we started, you know, raising from others. And it's a small ecosystem. So they often know each other as well. We were even able to combine them and do diligences, right? And say, hey, let's make it easier for you guys. These You've co-invested with this Done before. They're also in the process. Why don't we, you know, set up this due diligence process together for all of you and make it easier, right? There's some risk to that, obviously, but so you can only do it when you're quite confident that you're going to close them all, but that turned out to be, to be quite useful.
3: Well, there's no risk from the LP perspective. <laughs> it's quite the opposite. <laughs> it's quite an easy sell. Well, let's get you all kind of looking for the red flags together. <laughs> really easy. Yeah,
2: exactly. And then, you know, building Antler in the Nordics, I would say that was my second entrepreneur journey, right? My first was building up my own company in Turkey. My second was building Antler in Norway specifically, which is where I I focused the most to begin with. And the interesting thing is, you know, Norway is such a small market and it's a quite fresh market when it comes to developing startups. During the pandemic years, we had, I think we had six unicorns come out right during those, the last few years. So it's really changing, developing, growing rapidly, but it is still a very fresh and new ecosystem. And when we decided that we wanted to launch and and have operations in Norway as well, we sort of had to take a different approach than what we took when launching in Berlin and in London and Singapore and Australia and all these larger tech hubs. So for us, it was really important to look at, you know, what are we good at in Norway? Where can we have more credibility, build stronger conviction that we'll actually be able to succeed and also bring in great talent because we're dependent on talent. We're dependent on people bringing in really, really great founder talent and being the first investor and helping them from inception of the company. And then those first early days of building a company, right? And there's just not enough people in tiny little Norway, 5 million people. So we started drafting up kind of where are we really good? And we very quickly identified energy. That's something that we're known to be good at. We have a lot of credibility when it comes to building out innovation within the energy space. Uh, We quickly also saw that we're really good at prop tech. It's something that if you have money in Norway, you put money in in property and real estate. Uh, It's very digitized by now. It's very open. All the databases are very open. So it's easier to build innovations around real estate in Norway, I would say. It's a very good starting point. So prop tech was the second one that we identified And then the final one that we identified was mobility, where we saw that this is also where we can have an edge and where we can, by saying that these are the three verticals that we're going to have, give some special attention to. We could also bring in a lot of partners and founders that were particularly interested in that. So what we did was sort of go with this hypothesis. We think we can build something really solid around these three main verticals. And that's something that we hadn't tested in the antler funds previously or in other antler locations. But what ended up happening is that we were able to then bring in really great partners. That's when I say partners, I'm talking about sort of corporate partners. I'm talking about companies that want to be exposed to this type of innovation. Uh, and that wants to be a part of, or that has big problems that they need help solving, right? So we brought in some fantastic partners that's been with us from the get-go that would raise problems from their own industry, not specifically related to them, not something sort of this, this applies to obos only, but something that applies to the whole industry and we saw that that was very attractive to our founders and by being very specific and, and building out our advisory network our lp network our partner network around these verticals we could also bring in really really great talent from all across europe that were interested in building within this so we could bring in people someone sitting in spain right that has been doing battery optimization research or worked on energy throughout their whole career they would have a reason to actually relocate to oslo to build a company around their expertise together with us and that's what started happening right so more than half of our courts in oslo have people moving in from other locations and i think that was key for us to succeed and be able to build this in such a good way and we also saw really interestingly that so many of the companies that we ended up investing in they came out of some sort of collaboration between the partners that we brought in so they would raise big problems and introduce it to the founders and founders would be like i'm intrigued i want to start working on this and they started sort of testing hypotheses and following up with questions and they started kind of collaborating really early on and that's also an easier way to start right it's so it's hard enough to build a company to begin with if you already know that you have someone that's interested in backing you from day one that gives a motivation as well right so we would have people already interested in these industries with backgrounds that would match building something in these industries and then great partners to support them open doors to them be early adopters, be pilot customers, et cetera. And I think that was really important for us to be able to build as quickly as we did and do so many good investments in such a, such a short amount of time. So on average, we've been investing in 14 companies per year out of Norway, which makes us one of, by far one of the most active investors in the Norwegian ecosystem.
3: And you spoke recurrently like on the topic of stakeholder management, partner management, Mm -hmm. trust, like all around that. And I love, you know, we started this with your, with your journey into entrepreneurship. And, and I love that story. I love the, you know, the grit, the, the ambition to think big or go home, right? Go big or go home approach. And, and as you said, right, sometimes you have to sell it before you build it. Like it is the way it is. And it's not because you're being, you're being dishonest or whatever, just you have an underlying ambition and belief. And you're just explaining yeah. that you're just, you're just showing yeah. it to the world. However... You are also very intentional when you're talking about LPs, right? And asking, is it okay that I name you? Is it okay that I use your name? And you said it yourself. Some LPs don't want to be named. Others are actually quite fine. And something that I've actually written about and and taken a bit of a stance there is, you know, this kind of sell it before you build it on that GPs do. Sometimes we take it too far. And it is incredibly hard, right, to understand where do you draw the line. So how far do you go, right? And unfortunately, I think that the rise of of VC as, you know, the thing that everyone wants to be these days, right, has brought a lot of kind of negative behavior. So I'd love to ask you the question in a very open-ended manner, you know, which is where did you draw the line when building Antler Nordics in the beginning, right? So where did you say, well, we're not doing that type of behavior. Maybe it would help us fundraise, but it's actually borderline dishonest.
2: I think that's such a good point. And unfortunately, in the last few years, we've seen quite a few examples, especially on the founder side of founders that have definitely oversold, right? I hope and I think that as a result, that will we'll end up having a higher focus on ethics going forward. And to me, I think that's where the alarm bells need to go off for anyone, right? If there's no ethical standards As a baseline, as a foundation, it's not going to work out. So for us, it's been very, very important that we never lie. For instance, we always ask first, but you have to have sort of the balls to go out there and ask and say, you know, can we say this? Is this okay? And as long as they say yes, you know, fantastic. If they say no, we would never mention you. And I think it's very important to be clear on the, the kind of words that you're using. Don't say that we've closed this amount if you haven't then rather say that this is in our pipeline you know or these are the people that we're talking to and these are the amounts that we're looking at so i think you know that the whole approach and strategy that i had as a founder of sort of selling before it's built that only works if you have high ethical standards and are very intentional about the way that you put things and making sure that you're not you know like for instance that's why i asked starbucks for something in writing right so that it wouldn't be me making something up but where it would be actually them putting something on paper and that's also them actually putting something in it right beyond words they're actually taking the time to write something up for me same with the production they're actually taking the time to write something up for me and obviously contracts weren't signed deals weren't landed but as soon as you see a paper with their stamp on it that changes everything right so for me it's been more about taking an intentional strategy about asking for these things and not being afraid of asking for it and then using that as my leverage but i think it's a really important question to raise and i think as VC investors i hope at least that this is going to be raised more going forward you know if we have great crazy bold ambitious uh, founders it needs to be if you have that and it's not matched with having great ethical standards as well it can actually be quite dangerous so you sort of you, you need both
3: yeah. You know, obviously since since Andreas and I started communicating more and being more transparent about our syndicates, obviously we get a lot of aspiring and emerging GPs talking with us. And my favorite question this week has been, what does soft commit mean to you? Right? Yeah, right? What is <laughs> Everyone <that? laughs> has a fucking fun soft committed. Yeah. And I'm like, that's great, congrats, but what does that mean to you, right? And yeah. and sometimes it's actually just smoke, right?
2: Yeah, for sure. And you never know. Like we, we're actually In the Nordic Fund, we're so intentional about never celebrating anything until we see income paper. We're so intentional on it because, you know, everyone's had that a deal that you thought was going to go through. And then last minute something happens. I think that happens to anyone if you're a founder or, you know, a GP or an LP or whatever it is. Right. So we're actually very, very clear on that. We can talk about it. We can talk about sort of this is looking good. We're making progress. We're having great meetings and everything, but we never rest. Until there's ink on paper. And I think that's important as well. Especially with the fund, right? You need to make sure that you can actually get them across the finish line as well, right? It's you can have as many great meetings as you want to, but if it doesn't lead to commitment, it doesn't help you that much.
3: I don't want to derail this into philosophical conversation <laughs> at all, but that's really the tough thing on ethical standards, right? Who knows what it, what are the right ones and the wrong ones? It's, it's, it's a really tough conversation to have, but still an important conversation to have. So to avoid deep diving into that and us turning into philosophers here, which we're not, I'd love to ask about something else that you also talked about on the topic of partnerships, but from a very different perspective corporate partners. So that is one of those that a lot of people talk about. Many have gotten it wrong. A few have gotten it right. Give us some tips.
2: Yeah, and I guess maybe it depends a little bit on the stage that you're you're at as well, but any founder that's starting a, a company, what they lack is typically access to data or very often access to data and access to customers. Obviously access to capital can be a constraint as well, but we like when we when we do this with them, that's that's sort of a given that we provide capital as well, right? But data and customers can be really hard to to start gathering, right? And that's where the partners have been really, really instrumental for us and our founders. And we've been very clear on setting the intention, making sure that they understand none of our companies are ever gonna build something specifically for your company they're gonna they might even disrupt part of your business and if you're going to be a part of this you have to be okay with that and if you're not you're probably not the right partner for us so as long as we've been setting the intentions really really clear before we bring someone in and have this in writing and have you know been walking through this quite thoroughly with them before going into a partnership then it's been very clear so what we expect from them and what they can expect from us and what this has done is that you know, and another part of of the expectation setting has been that, you know, these are the things that the founders are gonna ask from you. Would you be willing to actually meet with them, dedicate some time to them? Would you be willing to share your data, share your learnings, let them tap into what you already have? Would you be willing to pilot it and test it? And all of our partners have sort of agreed to do that. And that is the intention of working with us and working with our founders. And that has been so, so, so positive for, the early days of our of our companies, right? Can you imagine launching a company and already having your pilot customer lined up because you've you've sort of developed it and had their input from day one. You have their they're sort of invested in it as well because they've been a part of it. They've been maybe they've been even raising that, you know, this is where the problem is. It's not necessarily over there. You need to go this direction. They've been sort of ideating with the founders from the get go as well. So they have their own interest in in seeing this be brought to the market and, you know, have put some time and effort into it. So they wanna really make sure that it becomes something valuable as well. And I think that's been a great success factor for us in the Nordics is having these partners that are, that have understood what it takes to work with startups, understood what it requires for them and have been willing to lean into supporting our founders in the really, really early days. And it's sort of uh, offloading from us as well, right? Because we, although we have had this industry focus in Norway specifically in general, we're industry agnostic, right? We invest across, all kinds of industries and sectors depending on what our founders want to build and then we can't be experts on absolutely everything so they're also filling a gap for us uh, where they can be much better at guiding our founders on things related to that specific sector than we can ever be
1: I, I really like the approach and i think that people who know energy prop tech mobility and climate also know the importance of the early very early customers the pilot customers and the ability to get those partnerships going and moving early i also think that i can see how this adds a lot of value to the founders that most accelerators really don't <laughs> um in the sense that a, a corporate accelerator because they come with you know not always the best incentive alignment and and that kind of thing you can yeah. easily end up with it being a corporate decelerator rather than accelerator right because in the end, the corporate's own agenda is more important to them than than the startups right so I really like it from that approach, and I also really like that you're not a generic startup creator uh but you're you're creating startups that are focused on a specific space so that both your partnerships but also your expertise in those spaces shines through and and really comes to the fore with with the the founders. But I'm curious to hear, because it's not the standard antler model, right? So I'm curious to hear, how do you exchange ideas across the ecosystem? And is there somewhat of a, uh, let's call it inspiration to the rest of the group? Because we're seeing many of the large firms that have used to be generalists, moving towards a more specialist model. They might still be generalist as a firm, but they have specialist GPs within different uh, verticals. I'm curious to hear how you think about that and where you develop in the uh, larger group.
2: Given how we invest, how we work with founders, we can never be too, too focused. We have to be a little opportunistic as well because we don't necessarily know what our founders are going to build. That being said, you know, when it makes sense, like in a small ecosystem like Norway, I think this model has been serving us really, really well. So when we exchange across sort of the global organizations, that's what we talk about. And specifically what's been important for us to share across is how we've been working with partners, right? Because we've seen that that's been so valuable to our portfolio as a whole, to our founders, to the companies that they've been starting. And that's what we're now doubling down as an organization on how do we bring in partners across the board as well. And it doesn't necessarily have to mean that you need to have a specific industry focus, right? For instance, now one of the partners that we're working with now In the nordics is an insurance company if insurances and that doesn't require a specific sector they work with our health investments for instance they work with our property investments so when we survey our founders which we do every six months we send out a portfolio mps and we ask our founders you know would you recommend others taking money from us? And what specifically can we do for you? And where do we help you the most? And it's very clear to us. And I don't think this is anything new. It's probably the exact same answer that you would get in in any VCs, right? But what's most important to our founders is access to capital. It's helping them raise capital, get access to more funding. But then after that, it's access to people hiring talent, and then it's access to customers, right? And by bringing in Having these intentional corporate partnerships that are based on a very good understanding from both sides, what's in it for everyone, what can you expect, what should you not expect, right? Then this is a really, really smart way to help us bring customers into our companies. So it's solving for a big problem that I think is really very often very hard for for VCs to, to help solve for.
3: And we are closing to the end of this episode. And we always end with a quick fire round. And that's when I'll ask you quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds each. Are you ready for it? I am. Let's go. First question, what areas, technologies or sectors excite you the most that other people around you don't really feel that excited about?
2: I'm actually really excited about hardware. And I think, you know, some of the biggest problems and challenges that we have right now, they're probably not going to be solved with another sort of software optimization tool solving for, you know energy storage, energy transportation, providing clean water, providing you know, proper food supply, our challenges with the climate, they're gonna require some other types of innovation as well. So I'm actually quite excited about material technology, hardware components, hardware technology in general.
3: Second question is, what are your top tips for emerging VCs who are now fundraising for their funds?
2: I mean, I guess I should pull back again what we talked about, right? That you always ask the ones that you're talking to, ask them, "Could I use your name? Can you name me a few others that I should talk to as well? Uh, But I think another point is really that it's so much about trust building. Obviously, you need to have a clear investment thesis and you need to be very clear on what you're going to build and how. But at the end of the day, they're going to look at you and they're going to think, "Will I trust this person with my money. Do I want to have a working relationship with this person over the next you know, 10 years? Because that's what it takes to really close the fund as far, well, right? And I think that's sometimes underrated. You need to really be able to connect with people and in general, be a nice person to work with.
3: Third and final question of the Quickfire is what is the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you've been in venture.
2: And maybe this is a little colored by the stage that we're investing in specifically, right? But coming into venture, I thought that we would spend a lot more time analyzing business models, sectors, market development, et cetera. And then to me, what I've been learning is that the more time and focus I spend on that, the the more I'm derailed from what I should really look at, which is the people. Obviously you need to solve a real problem and it needs to be an interesting problem it needs to be a growing market and all these things. But at the end of the day, it comes down to really, really identifying fantastic founder talent. So to me, that was a bit counterintuitive, right? Don't spend too much time in the really, really early days. I'm trying to be smart about the market and models rather spend time really getting to know the founders and trying to see if are these founders that are going to find a market and opportunity regardless of what happens. Right. So that was a bit counterintuitive to me when I started investing.
1: I love the count and two, two, part. Thank you, Anne. Thank you so much for joining us for this. This was a pleasure for me. And I am—I um, was thoroughly entertained during your your, your start about your journey <laughs> into venture. So I'm also thankful for getting that one more time. Thanks so much for joining us, Anne. You are amazing.
2: Thanks for having me. Bye.
1: Thank you for listening to
0: this episode of the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc.